This Post Reports podcast is brought to you by Cleveland Clinic, ranked number one in heart care 25 years in a row. Learn more at clevelandclinic.org care. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Vanessa Williams from The Washington Post. I'm hey, it's Philip Rucker at The Washington Post. Do you have a minute? Hi, this is Dan Zach from The Washington This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, October 28th. Today, ISIS after the death of its commander, the challenge of finding ethical chocolate, and the changing sea turtle sex ratio. Well, we've known since 2014 that there potentially would be a moment where the U.S. military would announce a capture or a kill operation against Baghdadi. Missy Ryan covers the Pentagon for The Post. I was out for dinner with some friends on Saturday night, and it was around 9.30 or 10 when I got an email from my editor flagging a tweet that Trump had just put out saying something very big has just happened. And it was this cryptic tweet, and everyone just started to scramble. I got on my bike. I biked home as quickly as I could, started calling sources, and pretty quickly we confirmed that there had been a U.S. military operation targeting Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, the Islamic State leader. Last night, the United States brought the world's number one terrorist leader to justice. Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi is dead. He wasn't killed by American forces. He detonated a suicide vest in an underground tunnel where he was with three of his children. And so that was the outcome of the operation and really the culmination of a five-year hunt, a more than five-year hunt against the perhaps most wanted terrorist leader in the world. He was the founder and leader of ISIS, the most ruthless and violent terror organization anywhere in the world. The United States has been searching for Baghdadi for many years. Capturing or killing Baghdadi has been the top national security priority of my administration. And what do we know about the circumstances of his death and of that military operation? So we actually know quite a lot, thanks in part to President Trump and his penchant for just sort of off-the-cuff remarks. There was uh, something, it was something really amazing to see. I got to watch it along with General Milley, Vice President Pence, others uh, in the Situation Room. What we learned was that there was a team of American special operations forces who were taken in via helicopter to a compound in Idlib province in northern Syria. They came in under cover of night. There were a couple of firefights before they landed. After they landed, they managed to breach a compound where uh, Baghdadi was believed to be hiding with some aides and with his family members. And there was this big battle. And what Trump and other senior officials have said over the last 24 hours was that Baghdadi, during the course of this fight, took several of his children, three children, we're told, and went into an underground tunnel where he ultimately detonated an explosive vest, killing himself and his children. And we know for certain that that is true. So I think that, you know, we have a high level of confidence that that's what occurred. Um, There was a DNA test that was conducted on site using DNA that Baghdadi's daughter had provided to the United States. So we have 
pretty high confidence in the sort of bare-bone facts that this is the way that the operation unfolded. There are certain components to what Trump said that actually are more questionable. He used a lot of rhetoric that I think was pretty unusual for a commander-in-chief or, or anyone in this kind of moment, which in some ways is a very somber moment. You're talking about a militant leader who was responsible for the death of thousands of people, you know, was known for his brutal tactics, really um, fomented this this incredible extremist um, operation that over the course of five years enslaved people, oppressed thousands of people in Iraq and Syria. But, you know, the way that Trump talked about it was... And we watched it uh, so clearly. How did you you watch this? Well, I don't want to say how, but we had absolutely perfect, as though you were watching a movie. It was like watching a movie. He said uh, Baghdadi was whimpering and crying. He died like a dog. He died like a coward. He was whimpering, screaming, and crying. And frankly, I think it's something that should be brought out so that his followers and all of these young kids that want to leave various countries, including the United States, they should see how he died. He didn't die a hero. He died a coward. Some aspects to that, you know, that we don't even know how he could have known that since he wouldn't have necessarily been hearing real-time audio for that operation. So, you know, it's it's difficult to know, especially right now. It's only been 24 hours since these, these this announcement was made. How much of this is um, sort of Trump embellishing or making this sound more dramatic than it was, which was already very dramatic, and how much of this is the real facts of the operation. As you said, Baghdadi was responsible for the deaths of thousands of people. But I'm wondering, why was he so important to ISIS? Well, it's an interesting story because there is a lot of debate about how instrumental Baghdadi himself was to the rise of ISIS. And that is important because that will help tell us something about the future of the organization. If he was this incredibly pivotal figure, he himself, his qualities, his leadership are really what enabled ISIS to be what it became, then you would think that their potential to regain strength as a potent militant organization would be less. But there there, there are reasons to be skeptical of that idea. So, you know, Baghdadi became the leader of what It wasn't called the Islamic State at that time. Um, This is an organization that has reinvented it several times. It uh, developed in Iraq after the 2003 invasion. It was called al-Qaeda in Iraq for a long time. And he stepped in into this organization in the mid-2000s and then made his way up as more senior militants were sort of killed over the years. And so he was the leader at a time when the civil war in Syria and a lot of instability, weak governance Iraq, really provided an an opportunity for what became the Islamic State to capitalize on discontentment among Iraqis and Syrians, recruit people from other countries. And my analysis is that it really was the conditions in those two countries that allowed the Islamic State to become this incredibly powerful organization rather than al-Baghdadi himself. What do we know about how U.S. intelligence officials were able to find Baghdadi? Well, there are a lot of different narratives out there, but but what we believe has happened is that the United States has worked really closely with Kurdish intelligence agencies in both Iraq and Syria. And what we reported yesterday was that there was a disaffected ISIS member who 
via the Kurds, worked with the United States and identified as early as this summer the location of Baghdadi in Idlib province. And so it took some time for U.S. intelligence officials working with the Kurds to verify that this disaffected ISIS member, who was an informant, could be trusted, that uh, he knew what he was talking about, he or she knew that what they were talking about, and that, that they could use that information as a basis for a high-risk operation like this. And this narrative makes sense because since basically the beginning of the war against ISIS, that the U.S. had been allied with the Kurds, that they were our biggest partner in trying to get a hold of ISIS, to come down on ISIS. And so the fact that that the Kurds were the go-between that allowed this information to reach U.S. intelligence officials would make sense. And this is the way the intelligence apparatus usually works, is that we work via partners who, you know, have relationships in these countries uh, and are able to do the kind of on-the-ground network construction, you know, BAP these these militant networks, on-the-ground relationship building in a way that Americans just can't. And so this seems to me to be an instance that illustrates why it is important for the United States to maintain close relationships with people like the Syrian Kurds in Syria and the Iraqi Kurdish officials in northern Iraq, because we need them to help us see and understand what is occurring within militant organizations in these countries to, in order to protect American national security. And so that those relationships are now seen, especially in Syria, to be in jeopardy because of President Trump's position vis-a-vis U.S. troops in Syria and the military offensive that is occurring with Turkey. So I think that makes it even more ironic that you have President Trump announcing last month that he's basically abandoning this partnership with Kurds in northern Syria. And and also I think it's worth pointing out that President Trump has been at many points very dismissive of the intelligence community and the information that comes out of there. So I think that in these two ways you're seeing the very things that President Trump seems to not be completely confident in actually working out to give him this huge victory. The Syrian Kurds have reason to feel at least concerned that the relationship with the United States is in jeopardy. I mean, there's been a lot of um, walking back of President Trump's original uh, withdrawal announcement since it was made earlier this month. But what's certain is that their relationship is perceived as having been downgraded. And we saw that in the way that President Trump talked about it yesterday. And your point about the way President Trump's depiction of the value of American intelligence agencies is a great one. He has repeatedly attacked intelligence agencies. He's um, raised questions about their um, whether they're partisan, whether or not they have an agenda. And that, I think, is very hurtful to the morale of these agencies where people risk their lives to do their job. But what we have been told in the last 48 hours is that the CIA and the special operations community worked hand in hand. And the intelligence for this operation came through the CIA. So without the CIA, I don't think this could have occurred. Missy Ryan writes about the Pentagon, military issues, and national security for The Post.
it's awful that this product that we get so cheaply depends on the poverty of people far away. Peter Worski is an investigative reporter for the Business Desk. And recently, he's been focusing on child labor in the cocoa industry. What we found is that there are you know, lots and lots of kids on cocoa farms in West Africa. Uh, U.S. Department of Labor has estimated 2 million in Ivory Coast and Ghana. They're out here um, hacking away at the brush to, to, to create a new farm here, new cocoa farm. When I was there, I met several kids, a dozen, who had just been bussed in basically from Burkina Faso, working for less than a dollar a day, living in the woods, drinking disgusting water, not having anyone really to take care of them. After Peter's story came out, chocolate companies like Nestle and Mars tried to defend themselves. The companies have said, look, we've got this project uh, called certification. We have third-party auditors who check to see whether our cocoa is being produced by child laborers. I found that there are a lot of big holes in the certification process, including the largest of the certifiers, a Dutch organization called UTS, which certifies more cocoa in the world than anyone else. It's the one that all of the large companies use. And there are lots of reasons to think it's not certified against child labor. There are actually more child laborers on their farms than there are on other farms. Wait, so this organization that basically their their job or what they say that they're doing is they're certifying cocoa so that you can say definitively this chocolate was not made with the use of child labor, but that the the farms that they're certifying actually are more likely to have child labor than other farms. Yes, according to their own uh, research that they co-sponsored. They found the researchers who are from a Dutch university went out there, did surveys, and found that there were more child labor more child labor at the farms that were certified by UTS than ones that weren't certified by UTS. The most important thing is that UTS authorizes companies to go around and check farms. And these are the third-party auditors. They found massive problems at their third-party auditors who are responsible for most of the cocoa coming out of Ivory Coast. Ivory Coast is the largest source of certified cocoa in the world. They had big problems at their certifiers, and they had to do with the audits. It's not exactly clear what happened because they're not saying, but it's clear from some of the language in the letters that have gone back and forth that I've seen that they were serious problems with, with the auditing process. Wait, so so not only are the farms themselves not doing what they're supposed to be doing, not following the rules that they're supposed to be following, but that the people who are in charge of auditing them, of checking up on them, they're also not doing what they're supposed to be doing. Exactly. What does this mean for the cocoa industry and for us as chocolate consumers who want to buy certified non-child labor chocolate that none of the regulations around this are being followed and that the certification process itself seems deeply flawed. So I'll tell you what the chocolate companies will say. They'll say, look, we've always recognized that certification wasn't going to get us all the way there. We have other programs and they are beginning some other programs to try to uh, remediate child labor. Very unclear whether those programs will work. They're expensive There doesn't seem to be a lot of uh, willingness to raise the price of cocoa. The farmers in Ivory Coast and Ghana, of course, would like to see a higher price. And many people think that if they got a higher price, they wouldn't be in the position of poverty, which leads to child labor. 
And why is it that this process is so difficult? It feels like there are other things like coffee, for example, right? We have fair trade coffee. People feel that being able to certify coffee as fair trade is relatively reliable. But that when it comes to cocoa, it it seems like it's impossible to get cocoa that's not made with ethical practices. Well, not from West Africa, which is where most of the cocoa comes from. I mean, the big problem is poverty. And you have these guys, these farmers, they have 10 acres. Many of them don't know how to read. They're very poor. They live in places where there's just dirt roads leading to paths to their farm. It's not an easy place to inflict European or American ideals of, of what's right and wrong. What do you think is the solution here, then? I think that a higher price for cocoa would probably go a long way toward helping these people. One of the big challenges for the families is that they don't have enough money for their kids to go to school. And if they had money from a higher cocoa price, they wouldn't feel obliged to have their kids home on the farm. But if you're saying that the solution here is a higher price for cocoa, that also means a higher price for the chocolate that we pay for in the grocery store. Yes, but it's only going to be a very small amount in a chocolate bar. So then why would there be resistance to doing that? Or or is there resistance to doing that? There is resistance. One company doesn't want to raise the price of their chocolate bars and lose market share. So if they all did it together, maybe that would work. But then that would be against antitrust rules for all the chocolate companies to say we're going to raise our prices together. Um, Another part of the problem is that if you raise the price, most of the Cocoa is sold through government, uh, the government in Ivory Coast, and there are the chocolate companies have questions about whether that money will actually get to the farmers. Are there any efforts being made by the American government to try to crack down on this or to try to prevent cocoa that has been harvested with forced child labor from coming into the U.S.? Yes. Two senators asked the Customs and Border Protection to take a look at this because under U.S. law, products of forced labor can be turned around, forced out of our ports. The assertion is that there's forced labor in our chocolate bars if, if, if they come from cocoa from Ivory Coast. And there was a team there last week investigating. If they come back and say Ivory Coast cocoa is forced child labor, they could potentially stop all cocoa from coming in from Ivory Coast and all chocolate products coming from it, from coming into the United States. Considering the fact that Halloween is in a few days, do you look at all this chocolate, like, in people's trick-or-treating bags and at grocery stores and say, all of this chocolate is tainted? You know, the idea that we should just stop buying cocoa from West Africa would just disenfranchise all these farmers and many of the two million child laborers are just kids who are really poor and working for their poor parents on small farms. I don't think the answer is to leave them. Peter Worski is an investigative reporter for The Post. one more thing about an alarming future for sea turtles. And it starts with a basic fact that scientists have known for a long time, 
The sex of baby sea turtles is determined by the temperature of the sand they nest in. The warmer the egg, the more likely the sea turtle will end up female. It's one of those weird things that humans don't fully grasp. We don't know why this is true. We just know that it is true. My name is Danielle Paquette, and I'm the West Africa Bureau Chief for The Washington Post. Loggerhead turtles are already an endangered species. But because the earth is getting warmer and the sand is getting hotter, the turtles are now even more at risk. And some places are seeing new generations of loggerheads that are almost entirely female. You're seeing major gender disparities in South Florida, in Australia, in Southern California. This is happening Everywhere the earth is getting hotter, the researchers tell me. So I went to the tiny island of Boa Vista. It's part of the West African nation of Cape Verde. For whatever reason, it's home to this enormous population of loggerhead sea turtles. Some 30,000 of them come every season to lay their eggs. These are the weak ones. The turtles that you have when you do the summation. Five or six decades ago, researchers found out that sea turtle eggs that incubate in sand below 81.6 degrees Fahrenheit produced males. And nests in the mid-80s created this ideal gender blend. But anything higher than 87.8 degrees is just completely female. And we're not sure why. So our mission was to go out there, find a mama turtle, and dig up her eggs. And once she starts laying her eggs, nothing can stop her. You have a turtle with five researchers all around her. They're doing other things, too. They're measuring her. They're making sure she's healthy. What is happening as this male population is shrinking? They want to know. It looks like you're watching a dinosaur perform this ritual she's been doing for a thousand years. It's so robotic. It just has this prehistoric vibe. I was on my stomach quietly watching it happen there for eggs just dropping like a foot away from my face. And after she was done, we watched her use her flippers to just kick sand over the nest. But after the the mama turtle is finished and goes back into the sea, then these researchers will just really, really carefully dig up the eggs and put them in the special egg bag. (laughs) But when you hold the egg bag in your hand, it's as heavy as a bowling ball. It's startling how heavy this is. And then they carry it back to this little, you know, enclosed area, put it in a new safe nest because part of their mission is to make sure as many turtles hatch as possible. So they're kind of intervening with nature here. They're making sure natural predators aren't getting to these guys just to protect um, the species that's just been shrinking everywhere. It's not just temperatures threatening turtles. You have plastics, oil spills, fishing nets that have been shrinking these populations across the world. So it's part of a bigger effort to make sure that they can, you know, continue to exist. Which is what happens if we get to a point where all of these turtles are born female. Okay. Biologist Adolfo Marco, he is with a group called Bios CV. This is the only place where loggerheads are nesting at this moment. And uh, so their extinction here is uh, catastrophic for the species. So the situation today on Cape Verde is not yet dire. With 84% females, you still have enough males to 
keep the species going. One male can do a lot of work. They're more worried about if global heating temperatures continue at their current pace. You could see no males at all by 2100. And if they, you know, if hotter temperatures arrive earlier, you would see no turtles because those eggs could just boil in the sand. There are seven species of sea turtles, but all of them are vulnerable to this threat. Danielle Paquette is the West Africa Bureau Chief for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Shout out to Steve Conifclat, who emailed to say that the Washington Post has been part of his life for 50 years, through Vietnam, Nixon, the Iran-Contra affair. And now he says that he waits every day for the latest episode of Post Reports to appear. Steve, we're glad that your loyalty extends to podcasts. If you want to reach out over email, we're at postreports at washpost.com. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Thank you.